today to Psalm chapter 33. Now, I hadn't intended to read this entire psalm, but I think that we'll just do this because this is really a great psalm. It speaks of glory to God. It speaks of the power of God in creating the world. It also has a very important uh, verse. All of it's important, but there's one particular verse that I want to use as part of the subject for our message today. So if you look in Psalm chapter 33, stand with me please in reverence for the reading of God's word. And I do want to read the entire psalm. Verse number 1, Psalm chapter 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the Lord... For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, and beholdeth all the sons of men, From the place of his habitation he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their heart alike, he considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. Horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hope in thee. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. And we praise you again today, Lord, for the wonderful opportunity we have to stand here and proclaim your word to our people, and we thank you, Lord, once again for this great country. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's really good to be back home, uh, standing in the pulpit here again. Uh, My wife and I had a great vacation. Uh, We had the opportunity while we were gone to visit many historical sites of our country. Uh, We spent a great deal of time traveling around the uh, northeastern states and New England. And uh, we got to see a lot of, lot of pretty sites and, again, a lot of historical sites. And I thought about that before we left. I knew that what we were, what we were going to do. And I thought that uh, when I returned today, that rather than going back to our regular study that we have in the book of Matthew, that we would take a break for another week and take advantage of this 4th of July weekend. So I'm going to preach a message to you today that's of a different type. Now, as you know, I don't really 
favor topical messages. Uh, What I prefer to do is take a book of the Bible and begin to preach there. And we stay in that book of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter until we finish. And so we have three studies that are going on currently. We study Matthew on Sunday mornings. We study the book of Revelation on Sunday nights. And then on Wednesday evenings, in our Bible study, we look at the epistle of First John. So that's my preferred method to do it that way. But I've decided today that we would do something a little bit different, that I am going to preach a topical message this morning entitled, Thank God for America. Now, I'm actually going to take you back about eight years ago, and I'm going to base this message on some things that I said then, but I'm not afraid that you're going to remember what I said because most of you don't remember I was here three weeks ago preaching what I said then, so you're not going to remember eight years ago. But my text today is in the book of Psalms, chapter 33, verse number 12, and then along with that, Psalm chapter 17, or Psalm chapter 9, rather, in verse number 17. And before I begin this, I want to make it very clear to you that the Bible is intended to be preached in its context. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to identify a particular context, especially when we're talking here about the book of Psalms, the psalm that we've just read, Psalm 33. We don't know who the author of it is. We don't know the exact time that it was written. But I can tell you this, that this psalm is not prophesying about America. Uh, The author of this psalm had no idea about America. He's talking here about Israel. He's speaking of the chosen nation of God. He's talking about even in some respect Gentiles that have been chosen as God's inheritance. But what we can't deny when we read these scriptures is that there is a truth here that God's kingdom will be established one day upon all of the earth and all nations that come to God and all nations that worship the true Jehovah God will be blessed. And so this psalm says in 33, verse number 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. And then if you'll look in the ninth ninth psalm in verse number 17, there you'll see that we don't have a blessing for nations, but here we find a curse. And that verse says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Now, as you know, I am not very big about preaching the political aspects of America. I believe in waving the flag, but I don't necessarily think that we ought to wave it from the pulpit. I don't think that it's the responsibility of preachers to deal with matters of government. I don't think it's our responsibility to lobby the government or not to back a political party from the pulpit. That's not the purpose of God's pulpit. It's not the purpose of its church. It's not the, 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 for the good of the church, not in the interest of the church, to try to affect a change in the world or in the kingdom of God by influencing the government. And the reason for that is because the secular government is not God's means of spreading the gospel. The secular government is not the way that God is going to bring his kingdom upon the earth. And neither is it government's responsibility to mix the government with religion. Now, that's been tried. It's been tried many times. And whenever that happens, somebody ends up being horribly persecuted. 
Now, in the history of the world and even in the history of our nation, there have been times when God's people have been persecuted because government tried to align itself with religion. And some of the people that were most notably persecuted were Baptist people because of the differences that we had in religions that were established in the beginning of our country. Now, as I say that, I also recognize that the scriptures that we've just read are true. That the Bible says that when the people of a nation worship God, when they worship the true God, that nation will be blessed. And then the scripture also says whenever a nation forgets God, then that people will eventually be turned into hell. Now, we have great reason to thank God for America because there is no sensible person that can argue about this, that great things have happened to America, wonderful things, miraculous things, have happened in this country because of our belief in God. And when the pilgrims landed here in America in 1620, they had the Bible in their hands. And by the way, the Bible that they carried with them from England was the Geneva Bible. They had that in their hands And what they thought of was having a place where they could worship God, where they could serve God without any interference. But it's interesting to note that even the pilgrims were confused on the issue of freedom of religion because they also combined religion with their government at that time. And when they did, they actually became persecutors themselves. And this is why you had a man like Roger Williams who left the Massachusetts Bay Colony, went and founded the colony of Rhode Island. It was because he was a separatist. It's because his religion was different from that of the pilgrims. Uh, He believed in believer's baptism, for instance, and not infant baptism. And so he was forced to leave that colony and to form his own. But we do know this, that in the history of our country, the United States was formed and then freedom religion of religion became a part of our Constitution. But one of the things that the leaders never forgot about is that we had to have faith in God, that the liberty that we have, that the freedom that we have comes because we believe in God, because we do believe that there is a creator. We believe that he made heaven and earth. We believe that. And even though the government has been divorced from an established religion, and that is rightly so, yet our founding fathers did not divorce themselves from faith in God. As we look back on 235 years of our country's history, it is evident to us that Christianity is the driving force of the religion of this nation. This nation was founded with Christian people. And that Christian religion has also been the backbone of the social life of America. But we can be painfully aware of how quickly that things can change. Let me read to you a description of a political leader from the past. This description says, Times were never better. The national economy was strong during his tenure. Inflation, which had been a plague for two decades, was under control. Peace and prosperity characterized the nation. Many considered him to be one of the most gifted politicians to come onto the national stage. One journalist wrote of him, although there was uneasiness over his character and the allegations of corruption and immorality that swirled around him, none of his political opponents could touch him. He was far too slick for their accusations to stick. So charming and personable was this leader that even religious leaders overlooked his lack of integrity. 
for his birthday, they distributed this prayer in the churches all over the country. Before you, O Lord, Heavenly Father, we remember our leader and president on his birthday. We ask you to continue to help him find the right way in all the difficult tasks that lay before our nation and to lead all things to a good end. Now, there is a description that you would think that would fit any number of the past presidents that we've had in America. But the description that I've just read you is actually of Adolf Hitler. When Hitler came into power... He came into power in Germany in a place that one time was ruled by the reformers. He was the president of the very same nation where Martin Luther began to preach sole fide, which means justification by faith alone, faith in God alone, faith in Jesus Christ alone. But times changed in Germany. And so the nation was then led by a leader who didn't know God, And so in less than 10 years, the mighty nation of Germany was brought to its knees, having been nearly destroyed in the Second World War. Now we think about that, and we think about the history of other nations, and a man like that, that was supported by the people, and and as it said in in the description that I just read, they overlooked his moral integrity. They overlooked some of the corruption that was there. How do we keep the very same kinds of things happening to this country? How are we going to keep our country from falling into the same trap of decline, of morality, of of godliness that they did in Germany? Well, one of the things that we have to do is to understand that the failure of our country is not necessarily the failure of our government. The failure in America is the failure of our churches. And the reason that we have problems in our churches today is because you can go to just about any church in our area, just about any church in, around the United States, and there you will find that the gospel preaching, the message of Jesus Christ as the Savior of this world, the one who saves us from our sins, who died on the cross, who saved us from hell, that has been replaced by an entertainment atmosphere. And so what you have in churches today are performances, and you have things going on in the stage. You have the rock music, you have the bands, you have the plays, you have everything else but the preaching of the Word of God. And so the failure is in the American pulpit because we've replaced it with entertainment, and then we've also replaced it with this false idea of teaching health, wealth, and prosperity. And so what people are looking for is what can I gain? What can I do for myself? Not what I can do for God. Not what God want me to be. Not how does he want me to live. How can I be holy and righteous? But how do things fit my purpose? And so you have that, again, that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's pervaded the preaching of pulpits today. Now here is the problem then. And that is, we do not have the gospel any longer. And when we don't have the gospel, there is no hope for our national institutions. We are not going to rise socially and politically above where we are spiritually. So what do we need to do? Well, I want to give you just three thoughts today, and I'll I'll try to go on quickly here. We're a little bit behind in time. Let me give you three thoughts, things you can think about, what really needs to be done in America. First of all, we need to remember our spiritual roots. What we need to do is think back on why this country was founded, where we came from. Now, some of you probably are a little bit confused about what I think of the relationship between the spiritual and political landscapes in America. 
I mean, I've just told you that I don't think politics is something that we should preach from the pulpit. But I know this, that in order for our nation to get back on track, we have to remember where we came from. What is it that actually prompted the founding of our nation? I've already spoken about the pilgrims. The purpose that the pilgrims came to America was because of religion. Well, they were mixed up on some things, but there's no doubt about this, that the religion of the pilgrims was Puritan, and the Puritans were thoroughly born-again Christians. We're talking about people that had an exalted view of God, much greater view of God than people have today. They believed that glorifying God was the primary purpose of everything that they did in their lives. They came to America to worship God. Now, the pilgrims were Bible believers. They stood on the inerrant, infallible word of God. They let the Bible direct their paths, and they did believe that the guiding light for every person is the Scripture, God's word. That's what's to direct our paths. And do you understand that that idea did not change when our nation was finally formed? The leaders of this nation, although they didn't maybe adhere to our particular beliefs, they they were convinced of this, that this new nation had to have a view of justice and of right government founded upon principles that are in the Bible. Most people don't realize that anymore. They haven't read what the founding fathers have said about the Bible and the relationship of America to Christian principles. George Washington said this. He said, did we bring the Bible to these shores? Or did it not rather bring us? The breath of the ancient prophets filled the sails of the tiny ships, bringing pioneers to the new world. From these beginnings until now, the Bible has been a teacher to our best men, a rebuker to our worst men, and the noble companion of all. George Washington was a great man, and he understood the principles of the Bible, how our nation had to be founded on that. John Quincy Adams, who was our sixth president, was a born-again Christian. And he said, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Now, there's no doubt what John Quincy Adams thought about it. You take the principles of Christianity, you you infuse those into the government, and the government has justice, the government has a right view of of how to treat people, the right view of how to govern the nation, founded upon principles that are in the Bible. Now, can you imagine a leader in this country today saying those things before a joint session of Congress? Do you think that they would do that? The indissoluble bond that John Quincy Adams spoke of has actually been dissolved. He said, we can't do it, but we have done it. Because our leaders in America really don't care what the Bible has to say about anything anymore. But these men believed in observing the principles of Christianity. Now, do you think that Barack Obama is going to say that to Congress? And to be fair to him, do you think that there's any leader who wants to be elected president or who wants to be elected to Congress who would say the very same thing that John Quincy Adams said? They won't. Because that indissoluble bond has actually been dissolved. When the state of Connecticut was founded, part of their constitution that predated 
any federal document said this. The fundamental order of Connecticut, the state, the government owes its origins to the wise disposition of divine providence. The word of God requires orderly and decent government, listen, established according to God to maintain and preserve the liberty and the purity of the gospel. That's what they said in the state of Connecticut. Years later, Daniel Webster wrote this, More than all, our government and our country were founded from the very first by faith under the divine light of the Christian religion. Anyone who would wish that this country's existence had otherwise begun is deceived. Let us not forget the spiritual character of our origin. Daniel Webster said that in the 19th century. Is there any question about what he believed? He was a senator. I mean, was there any question what he believed about the moral principles of Christianity and how our government must be aligned with those? Did you know this? That at one time in the state of Delaware, every public official that was elected, everyone that was appointed to a public office had to swear an oath. And the oath said, I do profess faith in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, his one and only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, who God has blessed forevermore, and do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, to be given by divine inspiration. Now, that's where we came from. Our spiritual heritage is built upon this belief in and the fear of God. Now, can you imagine that? That is a statement that had to be made by a public official before he could ever take an office. He had to say, I believe in God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the infallibility of God's Word. And do you know that that statement is more than what you would have to make in order to become a member of most churches in America today? Nobody says that you have to believe in the Trinity. Nobody says that you have to believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Very few churches stand on that today. So to become a public official, you had to make a statement greater than what it takes to get into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the problem. The churches of America have failed to stem that tide of degradation, of moral decline, of standing upon the doctrines of God's word. You take a coin out of your pocket. Take a dollar bill out of your pocket if you still have one, if the government doesn't have it. But you take that out of your pocket, and what does it say on it? In God we trust. Now the problem is that nobody today in America, or very few people, know what God you're talking about. The pluralism of America has given us all sorts of different gods. So in God we trust. What God are you talking about? What what did our founders mean? What did the people who put that motto on the coins mean when they said, in God we trust? Well, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, My wife and I, in the past couple of weeks, as I said, we were traveling in New England, and we stopped at Fort Ticonderoga in New York on the southern end of Lake Champlain. And this, is a, this fort is the first major battle or first one, uh, one that was conquered in the American Revolution, a very significant place because it controlled the uh, supply routes down the Hudson River. And so Ethan Allen came and he captured Fort Ticonderoga from the British. Do you know what Ethan Allen said? This is right on the wall. This, I picked this up because I read it 
when I was when we were going through the museum there. And it, it said here, Ethan Allen demanded that the commander of that fort surrender that fort in the name of the supreme Jehovah God. Do you think there's any mistaking who they thought God is? In God we trust. Who is that God? It is Jehovah God. And that God is Jesus Christ. Now the psalmist here is talking about Jehovah God. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And people today need to know that this is the same God that the signers of the Declaration of Independence had in mind. It is the same God that our Constitution speaks of. Now, I hope that you'll take time to read the bulletin article this morning, and I point this out about the Declaration of Independence, how those men declared actually their dependence upon God, while at the same time declaring their independence from the British crown. So if we're going to get our country turned around, this is what we need to do. We must remember our spiritual roots. Now, secondly, we must repent of our national sins. Now, let's remember again what the psalmist primarily has in mind. He's speaking of Israel. And if you want to know what the national sins of Israel are, you look at the Old Testament, you see what happened to them, you see what they did and how God responded to their sins, and their nation was destroyed because of their national sins. What about the institutions of that nation? Well, Jewish life was really wrapped up in Jerusalem. That's the holy city. Jewish life is wrapped up in temple, in the temple worship, where they worship Jehovah God. Jerusalem is Zion. And and to the Jewish people, the walls of that city represented invincibility. the, The tall walls of that city represented that God would protect them. But the truth of it is, there was no wall that could protect them, no matter how high it was, when God removed their hand from them. And we just notice here in the psalm that we read, Psalm chapter 33, verse number 16, the scripture says, There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. Now what the psalmist is telling us there, we can't depend upon ourselves. We can't depend on the great army and the navy that the United States of America has. When we turn our backs on God, there's nothing that can protect us. We have to have God on our side. And then these people looked to the temple. They believed the temple was invincible. When the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C., many of the people fled into the temple because they believed that God was there. There's no way God's going to allow the temple to be destroyed, so they fled there for their protection. But what they didn't know is that God had already left that temple. God was no longer there with them, and the Babylonians did destroy it. Now, as we look at America, we wonder what's happened to us. Well, God's no longer meeting with us because we have turned our backs on him. We can go back 40 years, and we find the Supreme Court says, well, you can no longer pray in the public schools. The Supreme Court said you can no longer display the Ten Commandments in our schoolhouses and in the courthouses. And you know what's happened in those 40 years since? America has experienced a moral decline. The only thing that we have that keeps us on top, so to speak, morally, is God's Ten Commandments. That's what we live by. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? 
by taking heed thereunto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wonder from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. And there you have the problem, don't we? God's statutes are no longer the foundation of morality and justice in America. And so what happens? You, you take the Ten Commandments out of the school, you take prayer out of the school, you take any teaching of God out of the school, and the public schools churn out more and more degenerates every single day. There's no stopping the depravity. It's going downhill. I was reading in the paper just the other day before I left that pornography is the expected norm for students in our schools today. And we're painfully aware that homosexuality is now taught as an, as an alternative acceptable lifestyle. The Bible tells us that's one of the worst sins that be, can be committed. But you'd never know it because nobody talks about the Bible. Churches dismiss what the Old Testament says about that subject. They dismiss what the Apostle Paul had to say about it. So they no longer, churches no longer believe the Bible. Why do you think the government's going to stand for anything? We have to understand all of Scripture has been inspired by God. And one of the things that the government says to us is that you can't legislate morality. And that's one of the reasons or excuses that they have for taking the Bible out of schools, taking it away from us, not paying attention to it in Congress anymore, things like that. They said you cannot legislate morality. But the government is actually doing that very thing. They are legislating morality, only it's their morality, not God's morality. Now, if you don't believe that, listen to this. This is a quote from the Federal Department of Health and Human Services report on the Secretary's Task Force on Human Suicide. That's a long title. What do you expect from the bureaucracy of this country? But that, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services report, this is what it says. Parents should know that homosexuality is a natural and healthy form of sexual expression. Religion represents a risk factor for youth because of the depiction of homosexuality as a sin and the reliance of families on the church for understanding homosexuality. Many traditional and fundamentalist faiths still portray homosexuality as morally wrong. And then you know what that government document said as advice to churches? It said religions need to reassess homosexuality in a positive context. They need to accept gay youth and make a place for them in the church. Existing youth programs like Boy and Girl Scouts should incorporate gay youth in their activities. It's not going to happen here. We still preach against that. Now, I do believe the Bible tells us to do this. We need to pray for those people. That is a sin that a person can be delivered from, just like they can be saved out of any sin. God is great enough to save us from any sin that we commit. So we pray for those people. We ask God to change their hearts, and we will give them the gospel. But what we will not do is condone people in their sin. We have to preach against this. Now, our nation began its decline when the Bible was thrown out. Our national sin is that we have forgotten God. I remember, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I remember going to school and I heard Bible stories in the school. My parents never worried about whether I was going to get a Christian education. They didn't worry about sending me to a, to a public school or sending me to a private school so that I could get a Christian education because they knew that Christian values were being taught in the school. 
I remember praying. I remember saying the pledge to the flag every single morning before school started. I remember when teachers came to school with all of their clothes on. And they said the students had to also. You had to dress like you were going someplace and looking decent. I remember that. I remember when the Gideons came and passed out Bibles to my sixth grade class. And they did that in an assembly that was called for that specific purpose. So these students could receive the word of God. I can remember when high school kids drove a pickup truck to school and they had a gun rack in the back window. And you didn't have to worry about whether they were going to shoot other students and teachers. You didn't worry about that. Now what's changed in America? Our accessibility to guns because we have greater accessibility? That's not the problem. The problem is the character of the people has changed. This is why we fear those kinds of things. This is why you couldn't do it anymore because the character of people is changed. I remember that when, uh, when I was in school that people got married and then they had children. I remember when abortions were illegal and they didn't suck babies out of a mother's womb and throw it into a trash can. I, I remember when there weren't children's faces on milk cartons and... Also a time, I I didn't know anybody personally in school that ever took drugs. I remember kids were taught respect for their parents, and they were taught that we were accountable to God. But that's different today. Our political landscape is different. It's not separation of church and state. What we have today is separation of God and state. Do you really want that? Does our nation really want to be separated from God? What does the psalmist say? He says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. And that's where we are. We are on the precipice of hell. Just like the great theologian Jonathan Edwards said, he said, we are hanging by the thinness of a spider's web, ready to fall into the fires of hell. But what we do? Well, we'll continue to do the same things we've always done or have been doing. We'll look for our next Supreme Court justices that will spit in the face of God, just like the last two women that were chosen do, and some of the men as well. We'll sin until all of our national institutions are torn down, and then we have no America to be thankful for. So we need to remember our spiritual roots, and we need to repent of our national sins. Let me give you another. I'm trying to hurry. We must renew our commitment to God. We must renew our commitment to God. You see, it doesn't do any good to acknowledge everything that I've said unless we turn back to God. And folks, the government is not going to do that. This is why preachers need to stop depending upon stemming the tide of government and return to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way you change people. You're not going to change the course of government until you change the course of people. The people is the government. You're not going to change it till the people repent of their sins and renew their commitment to God. And when Abraham Lincoln called for a day of national humiliation and fasting and prayer, he said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these things were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, 
We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Could that have been said yesterday? Abraham Lincoln said that. What, what is more apropos to today? What, what would Lincoln think if he, if he was here today? You know, he, he was speaking to people that still read the Bible. He was speaking to people that still went to church. They believed in those things still. What would he think of this unbridled greed that we have in America today? What would he think of the real estate collapse and the stock market tumble and and cheaters on Wall Street? What would he think of that? What's the philosophy of nearly, nearly every public company in America? Abraham Lincoln described it, his exact words. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these things were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient. And that's the way our nation is. The companies, the, the, the nation itself, the CEOs, the courts, our national institution, all of it's going to be brought down to hell because we are too self-sufficient. What would Abraham Lincoln think? I was driving home uh, Thursday, I think it was, and I was driving down Highway 101, and there on the right side of the road, there was a picture of Abraham uh, on the billboard. There was a, a picture of Abraham Lincoln in sunglasses, and they were advertising casino in, I don't know, up in Geyserville or somewhere. They're advertising casino. Can you imagine what Abraham Lincoln would think if he knew that his what he believed, what he portrayed, what he thought about America, what he believed was right, he'd be turned into that kind of an image. It is a shame for our nation today. Now, it really doesn't matter what you think of the last president that we had. I know that George Bush did a lot of bonehead things, did a, made a lot of bad decisions. But he made a statement and he was roasted in the national media for this. He made a comment that I think was absolutely right. He made a comment that he said that he was going to seek God for his decisions. And when he said that, you would have thought that he had invited Osama bin Laden to be the national security advisor. Because the media turned on him and they said, we do not want anybody asking God for anything. General Douglas MacArthur said, History fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. Now, we have to ask the question, what is it going to be? What are God's people going to do? Are we going to stand up and are we going to say we're tired of this? We're going to stand up and say that we're good and mad about what's happened to this country. And better still, are we going to realize that it's our own fault for abandoning what God told us to do? It's our fault. American Christians are to blame because American pulpits have abandoned the gospel of Christ and have abandoned evangelism. When Christopher Columbus came to this country, now he was mixed up a lot of things. When he came to this direction, he, he was doing more than trying to find a trade route to the Orient. Uh, even though his religion was wrong, he was misguided, he did believe this, that the intent of God was that in whatever lands that were discovered, the people that would be there needed to be reached with the gospel of Christ. The name Christopher Columbus actually means Christ-bearer. And there were streams of people that came to America More often than not, they came here because of the worship of Jesus Christ. That was on their minds. 
And folks, that's the commitment that we need. That's how we need to turn back to God and renew our commitment to him. When I look at the flag, I realize it's just a symbol. I'm glad that we can fly the American flag back on our property once again. We've got the light out there now since I've been gone and shines on that at night. But I remember when the American flag stood for more than just the nation. I think, yes, on this side of the auditorium we have the Christian flag. There was a time in America you didn't need a Christian flag. All you needed was one flag. All you needed was the American flag because people knew what it stood for. They knew it stood for principles of Christianity. Now, for 200 years of our history, we could say one nation under God, indivisible with life and liberty, life and liberty and justice for all. We could say that because we knew our God. But now we've been consumed with economic issues rather than moral ones. Now we're concerned about saving money rather than saving men. And now what we do is we push God out of our lives instead of bringing God into our everyday lives. We need to renew our commitment to God, and if we don't, all will be lost. So we need a spiritual awakening, and we're not going to have it until we turn back to God. And when we do, we'll become a leading exporter of the gospel once again. That's the way America used to be. America used to send missionaries all over the world, the leading exporters of the gospel. Now we have foreign nations that are sending missionaries to us so we can hear the gospel again. There was a little girl who stood in New York Harbor, and she visited the Statue of Liberty, and the guide was explaining about the torch, and the guide said, this torch symbolizes the light of freedom that America demonstrates to the rest of the world. And the little girl liked that, so that night she couldn't sleep. She was restless, and so she went into her parents' room, and she said, Mom, I can't stop thinking about that lady and I can't stop thinking about that torch she needs somebody to help her hold it up I didn't preach from Matthew today but that's exactly where we are in the narrative of Matthew Jesus chose 12 men to help him to hold up the light Jesus Christ is the statue of liberty for anybody who seeks to be freed from the tyranny of sin Jesus said I am the light of the world He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And he spoke of freedom, and he said, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's a lot of spiritual darkness in the world. And Jesus said, Not only is he the light of the world, but he said, You are also the light of the world. You are the light when you give God the gospel to other people. Now, the morality of our country is rotting. And Jesus said, You're the salt of the earth. In those days, salt was used as a preservative for meat. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the one that has to stem the corruption that's taking place. And I pray, folks, that us as Christians, all of us as Christians, that we are not walking in the same darkness that other people are walking in and that we're doing nothing more than adding to the corruption that's already in our nation. And sadly, people who call themselves Christians are doing that very thing. There is no holiness in our lives. We are leading the nation in corruption and joining in with it. The psalmist said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people who he had chosen for his own inheritance. But he also said, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Folks, I pray that we're in that first group. I pray that we are the ones that are still worshiping God. Not in the second group. Not in the second. 
No, I thank God for the America that I once knew. I pray God that this will happen. It will be the same America again. Remember these things that I've told you. Remember those, because that's what it's going to take to get our country back to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come into your presence again. We realize what terrible shape that our country is in. We've turned against you. We've seen our nation fail in so many ways, the economic decline that we're going through right now and the difficulty that people have. And it seems that nobody is interested in turning back to you. Lord, I pray that your churches once again would be the harbingers of the gospel, that we would preach it, we would preach holiness, that we would preach turning to you, that we would preach complete surrender to your way, to your will, to your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts today and make us help us to make the determination that we are going to be the people that leads this country in the right direction. I ask you to speak to every heart here today, souls that need Christ, Christians that need to be renewed in their commitment to you. Help us, Lord, as we sing this song today and as we depart from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.